Good morning, everyone. Well, I'll tell you, uh, one of the things that is a uniquely California experience to me is the fence. Uh, everybody I know here, everywhere I've ever lived in the Bay Area, we have fences around our homes. Now, I'll tell you, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. We did not have fences where I grew up. Grew up. N not only was our front yard open to the whole world, but our backyard was open as well. There was no privacy. Uh, if you were on a standard block with 40 homes lined up, you know, 20 on one side and then 20 that they back up to, you could walk out onto your back patio to grill food and you would see 39 other people grilling food. Um, as kids, we would play with other kids whose backyards all spilled into ours and it was great. Didn't matter how big your backyard was or how small because everybody's backyard was your backyard. It was like living on a, a golf course fairway. All of the grass you considered yours. Again, different than California, where everybody fences in the part that belongs to them. Now, there's a good reason for fences. Privacy, uh, making sure your dog doesn't run away when you let it out, making sure people don't come into your backyard in the middle of the night and do scary criminal things like look in your windows. Uh, every horror movie I've ever seen, the killer had access to the back door of the house because there was no fence in the backyard. Fences can be really good, right? Fences even keep other people's things from getting into your yard or, uh, or I'll say blowing into your yard. Uh, shortly after Andrea and I first got married, we moved to Michigan and we bought a house, a house that was built in 1918. Uh, this was all we could afford. That's the actual house. I found it online this week. Um, this house had two and a half bedrooms. They were all upstairs. By the way, if you've never heard of a half bedroom, uh, just visit a house built outside Detroit in 1918 and you'll see one. It was the size of like a, a very small fitting room at a department store. So two and a half bedrooms, both upstairs, and then one bathroom, which was downstairs. If you needed to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, you had to switch floors. So Andrea was pregnant while we lived in this house, and she had a long walk down the stairs, through the living room, through the dining room, into the kitchen, around the corner, to one bathroom multiple times in the middle of the night in her nine-month pregnancy. Anyway, this house in the Midwest had no fence. All right, next door to the house was kind of an old abandoned park that the city did not keep up. Now, in the picture behind me, you can kind of see the park off to the left, right? And it looks gorgeous. It's got a huge gazebo in it. Uh, it feels like they could have filmed the 16 going on 17 scene from Sound of Music in that park that you see there. But when we lived there, that park had no gazebo, nobody mowed the grass. It had a rusty old swing set and two termite infested picnic tables. It was abandoned. Well, on the other side of the park was a high school of sorts for kids who were being disciplined and not allowed to remain in the other high school in town anymore. And what the students would do is they would leave school at lunchtime and they would go to the park next door to our house and they would smoke at lunch and they would eat their lunch at, at lunch. And then they would throw their litter on the ground and the wind would inevitably blow all that trash toward our house. And because we had no fence, it would blow up against the house. It would blow up against the garage. It would just settle in our backyard. So let me say, California fences are not necessarily a bad thing. Robert Frost wrote in a poem, you've heard this, good fences make good neighbors. I think there might be something to that. Carl Sandburg, who is another American poet, he wrote something similar. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, but don't take down your fence. 
And while I think that that is probably really good advice for neighbors who share a property line and for actual real physical fences that will solve all sorts of property disputes, I wonder if it's really bad advice when it comes to the metaphorical kind of fences that we put up with our neighbors. These barriers we put up to keep people a little distant, a little bit further away. And I wonder if most of us might live out this Carl Sandburg quote with our neighbors who do not live next door, talking about the neighbors that we work with and the neighbors that we church with and, and the neighbors that we shop with and the neighbors that, that, that play soccer with our kids, that we watch the games with them. Jesus said, who is my, uh, somebody, let me go back. Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor, Right? Somebody asked him that, and he ended up telling the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'll remind those of you how he answered the story at the end of the story. He said, uh, who was my neighbor? Basically, everyone. And I wonder if, if, as we consider the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, I wonder if we don't love those we come into contact with, yes, but to a limit. I love, but not past my fence. And let's be honest about something. There are some people that we fence off more than others. There are individuals, right? There are people who've wronged us, people who just get on our nerves, the person at work who will not stop talking about themselves, the former friend who swindled you out of your hard-earned cash. We certainly put up fences to protect ourselves from those people. But I also know there are sometimes that there are whole groups of people that we fence off based on religion, fence somebody off based on their politics, based on their sexual orientation, based on their race, somewhere in us we say, yes, I, I love everyone because God loves everyone, but I believe the wise thing to do is to love with a fence. And I wonder if maybe that is not the love that God had in mind. Well, my goal this morning is not to try and stand here and convince you that you're supposed to go beyond your fence because I've taught on that before what it is to go close up, right? We talked about that. I think you know that already. And I'm not gonna teach you this morning the story of the Good Samaritan telling you that, that love involves sacrifice, putting yourself on the line for somebody different than you, because I think you know that. I, I'm not gonna show you the passages that say love your neighbor this morning or, or love your enemies that would suggest real love exists outside the fence. If you wanna show real love, it's not in your backyard. It's not love until it goes beyond the fence. We're not gonna look at those. Because I believe you know that, I know that. But here's what I also know, that most of us believe God loves everyone, therefore we should love everyone, and yet we still don't do that. And the reason is, there is something deeper going on inside of us that keeps us from loving everyone. Something is going on in us that makes us not able to love everyone. Contrary to what it feels like when you don't love someone, the thing causing you to not love them is not them. It's you. And most of the time, the reason that we don't love someone, the thing causing you to not love them, all of that, there's something in us. The, the reason we don't get out of this resistance we have is because we never address this thing in us. I'll tell you, if there is any person or any group of people that you do not love, guess what? that says more about what's going on in you than it does the other person. Or I, I actually I say, what's not going on in you? And today, we're gonna talk about that. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that the series we're in is all about these if-then statements. If this, 
than that. And what we said the first week is there are all sorts of things that we suggest that we believe, we purport to believe, but are then suggest that that's not really true because that if, if it were true, would result in a very specific then. And we, and we said the first week, you can look at your then and know that, 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 that when it's not quite what God had in mind, it probably means that your if is off. It's not what you thought. Well, I think everybody here would say that we believe God loves everyone. That is the if today. Uh, in fact, I suggest if someone were to come to you and ask you to write a statement of faith, like what you believe, you might put that at the top. God loves everyone. Okay, it follows. If we believe that, then we love everyone. But the fact that we don't reveals something is off with our if. And rather than spending all of our time this morning convincing you that you should love everyone and leaving your if slightly broken, which will wind up putting you in the same place you are now, can we do something different today and use the Bible to help you with that if? See, maybe we struggle more than we know with really believing that God loves everyone. Um, I read a story this week about a Florida man. It's always guys in Florida, by the way. Uh, this guy got into a dispute with his neighbors. Neighbors were fed up with all the noise and the commotion always coming from his house, yelling, constantly coming from his house. And, and so the neighbors all got together one night when there was a lot of noise, and they decided to go to his house and confront him. And so they knocked on his door, and a few moments later... He appeared with a machete in his hand, held above his head, and on it, he had scrawled the word kindness on the machete, giving it a name. He literally decided to try and kill his neighbors with kindness. He came out of the house swinging it. I won't go into all the details. No one died. But he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. All right. I wonder if we're not that misguided to literally kill our neighbors with kindness. But maybe when it comes to the idea of loving our neighbors the way that God does, something's a little bit off with our if. Now, what could possibly be off with our if? I want to show you in a passage out of 1 John 4. The passage we're going to look at is a bunch of if-then statements about God and about love. And I will tell you, it is the main passage that explains the concept of God being love. There is not one passage that does it better. And as we read it, we're going to see a lot of if this, then that built right into the passage. And these little if-thens are going to tell us what might be wrong with our bigger if-then. All right, you'll see. Let's jump in. We're going to start at 1 John 4. Oh, it's already up. 1 John 4, uh, verse 7. Take a look. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then it says, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. All right, now, we are two verses in, and already the words God and love appear ten times. One thing you're going to find out about this passage is it's really simple, but it's also really wordy. And I'm going to try to unwordy it for you, okay? Let us love one another. That's easy. That's an easy one. Love comes from God. It says that. That's a really easy one. But this next line, take a look at this. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, here is our first if-then statement. If you love someone, then you must know God. Do me a favor. Turn to somebody around you, probably somebody you came with, and say, if you love someone, it means you know God. Would you tell somebody that around you? 
In fact, let's do this. If you're here with somebody that you know loves you, do it again, and this time say, if you love me, you know God. Would you do that? All right, my guess is everybody loves somebody. I hope you do. You love your husband, you love your wife, you love your kids, you love your mom, you love Steph Curry. Everybody loves Steph Curry. If you have anything in you that is able to love another person, then you must know God. Now, wait a second. Is that true? Does that like pass the truth test? Because you know people, I know people who do not seem to know God. And maybe they're atheists and they don't believe in God or, or maybe it's somebody who doesn't want to know God or, or maybe they're people who've chosen to reject God. I, I don't know that we would think of some of those folks as, as, as God knowers and yet, those people are still loving, right? So, so how can this be? Well, here's how it can be. The verse says that if you love someone, then you do know God. And whether you know you know God or not, you know him. Now, the point was to simplify. I might have just made it harder. So let me try again, okay? What it's saying is if someone loves someone else, it's because they learned love, they, they found love. They modeled love after, they experienced love, they didn't wear a mask and they caught love like a virus from God. If you love someone, then you must somehow know God because you are doing the thing that defines God. Love. It says right there in that passage, God is love. How can this be that somebody can know God and then not know that they know God? All right, I'll tell you how. In Romans 1, Paul, uh, Paul writes this in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, from the beginning of the world, those things have been clearly seen being understood from what's been made in the world so that people are without excuse. In other words, as people, we will not be able to say someday, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know there was a higher power, something going on in this world because it's evident in all of the creation around us. It keeps going. Verse 21, it says, for although people knew God... They neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their, their foolish hearts were darkened. Yes, you might know someone who doesn't follow God or doesn't believe in God, maybe even has rejected God, but whether they know it or not, they know him at least a little. If someone loves another person, then they must know God. My guess is that this is most of you. Most of you would say this part of your if-then statement is in good shape. Most of you love somebody. I hope you all do. Um, in the words of Rick Springfield off his 1984 album, the soundtrack from Hard to Hold, you better love somebody, it's late, you better love somebody, don't wait. Does anybody remember that song besides me? It was great, way better than Jesse's Girl. I don't know what happened there. Okay, now check out verse 8. Check out verse 8, bottom of this. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. All right, here's a switcheroo. And, and with it comes a new if-then. This verse also says, if you don't love other people, then you must not know God. Now, hold on a second. Didn't we just say everybody loves somebody and that means that everybody must know God? If that's the case, how could I know God and then not know God at the same time? What in the world is going on here? If you love somebody, it means you know God. If there's anybody you don't love, you refuse to love, that means you don't know God. This is confusing. 
And, and can, I, can I just be totally honest? Personally, I am both of those things. There are people that I love, and there are people that I probably don't. And my question is, what does this mean for me? Do I know God or do I not? Which is it? All right, let's see if this helps. This last year, for the first time in a long time, our family got a chance to travel finally. Um, one of the positives of a, of a pandemic is our vacation savings has really been able to pile up, so uh, we couldn't spend it. We decided to finally use it and go to Hawaii. We decided to go to the Big Island. Um, by the way, interesting thing about the Big Island, we would tell people we were going to Hawaii, and they would say, oh, are you going to Maui? And uh, we would say, no. And uh, they'd say, Kauai? And we would say, no. And, and then we would say, we're going to the Big Island. And they'd go, oh. And I would say, why is that so disappointing to you? And they would say, eh, it's fine, it's fine. It's different. That's what they did. it's different. Well, we loved the big island. I would recommend it to anyone. Volcanoes and lava rock and waterfalls and rainforests and caves and black sand, white sand, green sand. We covered almost the whole island. And one of the things that our kids really wanted to do was snorkel. Well, as luck would have it, a hotel that we were staying at for a couple of the nights, it had its own private lagoon. What I mean by that is they had created a man-made lagoon on the grounds of the hotel with seawater that would find its way in, and they had put sea turtles and fish in this lagoon that somehow do not leave. I don't know if they're trapped in there. I don't know if they just like the safety of the lagoon. There's no sharks. I don't know. But uh, you can snorkel in this lagoon, and you can paddle board in this lagoon, and you can rent paddle boats, and you can rent one of those giant like tricycles that go on the water. You see those things? around. So it's basically a safe little miniature ocean for families, no waves, fun place to hang out. We got to the hotel and within 15 minutes, we've got our snorkel gear and we are wading into this lagoon. And we get about five feet deep and we put our heads underwater and we see nothing. <laughs> when I say nothing, I mean uh, not just that there were no fish there at the moment. I mean, you cannot see more than about three feet in front of your face. And we swim all over this lagoon for 45 minutes looking for fish, looking for turtles. Once in a while, we spot a few fish. It looks like this. For half a second, we see them as they dart past. Maybe, maybe, but otherwise, nothing. It's cloudy. It's murky. It's okay. Andrea and Kennedy just decide to give up, and they go back to the beach around the lagoon, uh, read a book, get a drink. And Quinn and I are determined to find a turtle, because supposedly there are six turtles in this lagoon. And after about 45 minutes, I find one, because someone standing on the shore of the lagoon points into the water and yells to me, there's one right here. And, and, and what do we find? That you have to be this close to the sea turtle to be able to see it because the water is so gross. Um, by the way, do you know how far away from a sea turtle you have to stay according to Hawaii law? Ten feet! So kind of impossible in this lagoon. Okay, a few days later, now we're staying further down the coast and, and we decide to go snorkeling again, but this time in an actual ocean. We go to a beach called Kahalu'u Beach. And this beach has actual coral in it, about six feet out. And, and this beach is so popular. They have like snorkeling park rangers. I don't know what else you would call them. That's a picture of some, like 20 people in blue shirts who are doing two things. One, making sure you wear reef-safe sunscreen. And two, showing you how to snorkel. And so we get into the water here, and it is a world 
of difference. We see bluefish and yellowfish and orangefish. And I, and I wouldn't say there are fish everywhere, but you can actually see fish 20 feet away, 30 feet away. And after about 90 minutes, we get out, and I'm talking to one of the rangers, and I, and I say, where else would you recommend we snorkel around here? And she said, have you been to Two Steps? And I said, what's Two Steps? She said, it's a beach, although there really is no beach. It's, it, it's a thing about an hour south of here where there is lava rock and it goes out into the ocean and they call it two steps because you have to step down into the water from the lava rock. It's kind of a natural step, but because it's so much deeper and there are so many less people, you will see much bigger fish and the water is so clear, you need to go to two steps. Okay, a couple days later, we go to two steps and, and you guys, it is unbelievable. It is like swimming in a tropical aquarium, you can see forever. She was right. Bigger fish, sharks, more kinds of fish, eels. More cor eels are freaky, by the way, when they go by you. More coral, um, alive coral. And again, visibility like you wouldn't believe. In fact, at one point, I am snorkeling at two steps about 100 yards out into the ocean, and it is deep. Like, frankly, it's scary deep, in my opinion. And I swim around the valley of this coral because there's so much coral. It creates, like, these little passageways and valleys. And, and I swim around it, and I find that somebody has done this on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, for those of you listening to our, our podcast and unable to see the picture, they've gotten cinder blocks out there, and they spelled out the word aloha on the bottom of the ocean. So as you're snorkeling, you can see this. And it was so clear. I'm snorkeling at the surface and I can see this like 30 feet deep, as clear as day. This was snorkeling. All right, the lagoon at the hotel, I knew snorkeling. I gave it 45 minutes, I wore the gear, I saw a turtle even. I could come home from Hawaii and if somebody asked, hey, did you guys snorkel? I could say, why, yes, I did. I know snorkeling. Okay, the second place I went, it was so much better that while I realized I, I knew snorkeling before, I didn't really know snorkeling. And by the time I was done, I assumed my knowledge of snorkeling was as good as it was ever going to be. I, I only wanted to go to the third place just because why not try another place? But the third place, two steps, two steps is where I realized that you can know something or even know something, but there's another thing where you can have such a new, profound knowledge of something that in the moment of knowing it, you realize there is so much more you still don't know. And I tell you that really long story about snorkeling on the big island because I think it is the same with God. Because you can know God, and then you can know God but then you can know God at such a deep, profound level that you know God in ways that you never thought existed. And here's what you got to realize. The depth of your experience changes the depth of your ability to reflect God. The depth of your experience of him changes the depth of your ability. Let me, let me just say it again because this is going to tell you something about you. The depth of your experience of God or your knowledge of God, let's say that. And I don't mean head knowledge. I mean your knowing him, your relationship with him changes the depth of your ability to reflect him. Now, remember what we read. 
in verse 8, the three words at the end. Actually, let's put it up. Verse 8, let's think to the next slide. Read that highlighted part up above with me. The very end of verse 8, three words, read them with me. God is love. The degree to which you have experienced the love of God for you will determine the degree to which you know the love of God and can reflect it to other people. Let me say it again. You can only reflect as much love to others as you have allowed yourself to experience personally from God himself. If anyone loves someone, yeah, they know God. They know him like I knew snorkeling in a lagoon. I did it. I knew it. If I had to write a report on snorkeling and what it is and what you do and what you see, I could have done it. I could have done it, right? Could have reflected it a little. But if anyone does not love another person, or another group of people, if anyone chooses, I will not love that guy, that person, those people, he has wronged me, she has stolen from me, they have gotten in the way of me getting what I want. They don't deserve it. They haven't worked hard enough for it. They've done too much that's wrong to be forgiven by me. They haven't earned what I've earned. There are all sorts of ways we say that I don't love someone without actually saying I don't love someone. If anyone does not love someone else, they may know the lagoon, but they don't know Kahalu'u, and they certainly don't know two steps. Maybe they don't know God as well as they could, maybe even more, even more. They haven't experienced the depth of God's love for them the way that they were meant to, as well as they need to. You can know God's love a, a little, real shallow, or you can know God's love deeply. You can have experienced it deeply. And, and I know that our if-then statement that we've used for this series and, and for this sermon is if I really believed that God loved everyone, then I would too. But I would suggest 1 John tells us that we should flip this. If I am limited or shallow in my love for others, then... I must not know God's love as deeply as I can. In fact, let me show you verse 12. Verse 12 tells us, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Look at that last line there. His love is made complete. All right, you ever watch a TV show or a movie on, on your DVR or maybe you're watching on Netflix and it says on the progress bar at the bottom that this movie is an hour and 35 minutes, 35 hour, 35 minutes, and the movie gets over and there's eight minutes left on the recording stream. You ever notice that? And you think to yourself, did I get like the whole thing? Is there more to this? Is the movie completely over? Because let's be honest, I'm not going to watch the credits, but boy, eight minutes left? It might be like a Marvel movie where there's two scenes left, and if I don't get them, I've ruined the whole thing for myself. They're important. So you fast forward, or you scrub through the movie to make sure you got 100% of the movie, that it's really complete. The way you know you got the full 100% God experience is not when the credits roll or, or, or when the recording ends. It's when you are able to love everyone. If we love one another, then it's evident that God's love is complete in us. We got it. But as long as there are people you do not love, then what it means is there is love from God that you have not let yourself receive. And here's what I would ask you this morning. Because I'm not going to teach you today that you're supposed to love your neighbor, love your enemy, forgive 70 times 7. You, you know all. Here's what I'd ask. 
is it possible that the reason you still don't love the person that you are very likely thinking of right now or the group of people that you have such a hard time with, the reason that you treat people on the opposite end of the political spectrum with so much disdain, the reason that you are tired of giving people second chances, the reason that you refuse to listen to the story of someone who is not like you, any of those, is it possible that the reason you are not loving someone is because you have been resisting the depth of God's love for you? You know what I think keeps us from allowing ourselves to receive God's love in completion? I think sometimes it is fear. Fear that comes with a deeper knowledge of God and his love. I think also it's a fear of strings. There's strings attached. It, judgment from him, does that come with his love? Punishment from him? Now, in the same chapter on God and love, verse 18 says this. Let me just read you verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect, is not made complete in love. It actually says God's love drives out fear of those things. I'll tell you right now, if you are someone here who fears punishment from God, that just means that there is more love from God that you have not let yourself get yet. You are not complete. Maybe you don't fear punishment. Maybe you wonder if God's love is limited for you. It will, it, it'll run out for you because you have blown it too many times. All right, the Bible tells us there is nothing you can do or somebody else can do that could separate you from God's love. And, and this, is, this is how you know. Verse 9 in the same chapter we've been in. This is how you know that God's love is so much deeper and, and so much more endless than you ever thought endless would be. He sent Jesus into the world that we might live through him. And then verse 10 says that Jesus would pay the price for our sins. Verse 16 in this chapter goes on to make a bold statement. It says, you can rely on God's love for you like you can place your trust in it, your security in it. In Isaiah 54, God says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. In 1 John 3, the chapter before this one we, we've been in, it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. I don't know how to convince you that you are loved. I can't talk you into feeling loved by God. But what I can tell you is that if you are struggling with God's love for you, then you will struggle to love other people. And if right now, if you would be honest enough to admit that there are some other people you do not love, then it means you've got some work to do to know the God who is love wanting to love you more. I've asked the band to come on and, and play a song that I want to just ask you to sit and listen to. And I, I asked them to do this song because one of the themes of this song is God's great love for you. But, but there is a word in this song that most of us do not know at all. It, it is a word that is in Hebrew. Um, there is this moment in the book of Genesis where God provides a sacrifice for Abraham. It, it's a long story, but Abraham thought he was going to have to sacrifice his own son. By the way, don't miss the parallel to what God ends up doing later with Jesus. But, but, but God stops Abraham from doing this. 
and he provides a ram to be sacrificed. And Abraham is so moved by God's love that he builds an altar right there and he names this place, the Lord will provide. The name in Hebrew for it is Jireh. Jireh meaning God provides, he provides. And I believe that some of you need to know today that God will provide his love to you. You are not the one person in the world that God decided, I'm gonna give everybody else all of my love, but that person, they're gonna get 20%. I'm gonna hold it back. No, he will provide it all to you. And, and maybe as they sing this, you just need to let yourself begin to accept that love and wade deeper and deeper into the water that is God's love for you. Will you listen to this as, as they sing?